Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. When I was in college preparing to be a pastor, some of our most important education went on in the lounge, in the dormitory. We had three floors in the guy's dorm. We had a lounge on each one, and we would hang out and uh, solve the world's problems, sort of like uh, you know the brain trust down at McDonald's does every morning. Um, only we discussed high and lofty things about the ministry. <laughs> and one night, our attention came to cursing and trying to figure out what we were going to do when we were pastors and we wouldn't be able to say cuss words. And so we thought, well, we're going to have to come up with a substitute because we are going to hit our thumb with a hammer just like everybody else does, and we are going to have things that we have to exclaim something. So we talked and talked, and we finally came up with a suitable word. Puppies. (laughs) Puppies. 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 Yeah, I told you, we were wise beyond our years. All we knew was we had to avoid those four-letter words. Did you know there's a four-letter word in the Bible that many people desperately want to avoid saying? It's not a word that we think of as bad. In fact, it's a word that Christians tend to think of as good, even though maybe they haven't really thought it through all the way. This word is used hundreds of times in the New Testament. It's used to refer to God the Father and God the Son. It's the most common way the disciples addressed Jesus while he was on earth. And it's a word that makes many people hate Christianity. That four-letter word is in this verse right here. And behold, a woman of Cana came to that region and cried out to Jesus, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. There's our four-letter word. Son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. Here's another example of how it was used. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. The four-letter word that I want to talk to you about today is the word Lord. And you say, well, how can that possibly be a four-letter word? How can that be a word that people want to avoid saying? Well, we'll understand that better if we think about the definition of that four-letter word. See, one of our problems um, as modern-day Christians is when we we see a verse like this and the word Lord used, we think of it as a title or a name that people use to talk about Jesus, and it was. Here it's, it's, O Lord, Son of David. Sometimes it would be, O Lord, something else. And, and so we think, well, that's just the way they call them. You know, um, my last name is Lunsford. That is my father's family name. My middle name is John. That was my dad's first name. And David, I assume, was just a good, strong Bible name. Got to have a good Bible name. And uh, David, John, that's two, two good Bible. What's that? For a future preacher. It's her fault. And so we think, well, your name is David John Lunsford, you know, or Dave, whatever. It's just a name. 
You know, we, in our country, we don't even think about last names much and what they might mean. Mine comes from England and, and a place where there was a ford over the river and some people named Lunds, and it was Lunds Ford. It was their ford over the river. You know, something like that. And there's a whole varieties of, of spellings of that name. But we don't think about any of that. It's just your name. And we think about the word Lord the same way. The Lord, the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. We, we just, it's just his name. It's just, it's just uh, like, uh, like somebody said to me, Sir, Katie, love that. Sir, yeah, can't get enough of that. But we need to understand that the names and titles of Jesus are much more significant than just a name. The word Jesus is an adaptation of the Old Testament name Joshua from a Hebrew word that means God will save. And it's not an accident that he was given given this name, and he was given this name before he went on the cross. He was given this name before his birth when the angel talked to Matthew and said she will bring forth, talk to, uh, excuse me, to Joseph. She will bring forth a son, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's what this name means. That's why it was his name. It wasn't just a good name for a future preacher. It was an important, significant name. Now, the word Christ, literally in in Greek, probably the most literal understanding is it means to rub on, to rub something on, and it's connected with the idea of putting oil on a person's head when they are specially chosen for a, a role, particularly a spiritual role. In the Old Testament, when, when God chose a king, they would, they, you know, they, the prophet or whoever would find this fellow, like David, and then they took oil and poured it on his head. And the word for that pouring, it, it, it came to be that he is anointed, he is poured upon, he is specially chosen for this role. And so this is the, the Greek word, the New Testament was written in Greek, that refers to Christ as the specially chosen one of God. And, you know, it comes, the name Jesus and Christ comes together beautifully in a verse like John 20, 31. These things, the gospel of John is written that you might believe that Jesus, that was his kind of common earthly name, God will save. You need to believe that Jesus is the specially chosen one of God. That's how they would have read it in the first century. We just see two names. And then we see the third name, which is the word Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. But what we don't grasp from the word Lord is the word Lord literally means master. A verse like this really helps us understand in most of your Bibles that the same word translated Lord is translated master in this verse. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or God and wealth. Today, the Seahawks are playing St. Louis, right? And what we hope will be a blowout. But given recent history, we're not so certain. But when you sit down at your TV, you have to choose who you're going to root for. Now, do any of you want to admit you're rooting for St. Louis today? No cookies for you, mister. (laughs) No man can serve two masters. No man can root for two teams. Not at the same time. And this is a teaching on 
how we approach wealth, but the word master or the word Lord, we could put it this way. No man can serve two lords. And so when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just a title, it's not just a name, it's not some old Bible word that doesn't mean anything. It means the master, Jesus Christ. And so we ought to ask this question, does Jesus take this lordship thing seriously? Or was it just a title to him like somebody calling me sir? Well, I think we find out about it in one verse before what was read in somebody's testimony this morning. Oh, I've skipped over something, didn't I? Well, right here. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You shall love your master with all your heart, soul, and mind. Does that sound like Jesus takes the whole lordship thing seriously? Now let's look in in your text that you have open, Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. These words very near the end of, of Christ's days on earth. And Jesus came, verse 18, and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me. You know, we could just stop right there, right? All authority has been given to me. Either that's true or it's not true. Either he is the Lord or he is not the Lord. There's no middle ground here. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. So Jesus says right at the end of his life to his followers, he said, I have the right to set the standard. That's what it means when you're the master, right? Uh, Those of you who will be going to work tomorrow, somebody's at the top of that food chain. And somebody gets to say, this is the way we're going to do things. You can argue with it. Ultimately, you can quit. (laughs) But somebody is going to say, this is the way we do things. Jesus, right here, with his disciples gathered, those men who we will come to call the apostles in a very short time, he says, all authority has been given to me. I am the master of the universe. Now here's what I want you to do. And what is that standard that he set? Well, he said, I want you to make disciples. And the word disciple means a learner. In our way of thinking today, it would almost be like an apprentice. Um, I know some of you work with apprentices in your work, and here is a young person or a younger person usually who doesn't know anything too much about the field, and they've come in, and you're going to teach them. And ideally, they are going to do things the way you teach them. (laughs) That doesn't always happen, but that's the goal. The goal isn't just a transfer of knowledge. Now sit down, Mr. Apprentice, and I am going to give you all of my pearls of wisdom. And at the end of it, the apprentice gets up and says, yes, master, and walks away. No, the goal is for that person to learn truth and then act on that truth. That's what it means to be a disciple. Uh, The disciples... We'll see an example of this later. There were many times when people who were kind of followers of Jesus came to a point where they said, nah, nah, not for me. 
So they weren't really a, a disciple at that point. And discipling does involve teaching. It does involve the giving of information from, from the master to the follower. And that's when we come to verses like this, when Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. In other words, if you today want to say of yourself, I am a follower of Christ, the test is, are you abiding in God's word? Do you obey the things he said? Do you live the things that he said? I knew a dear old saint once who, uh, when, uh, when she would go to the doctor, she would come away and say, well, the doctor said, but I just think. The doctor prescribed this and this and this, but I just think. You go, hmm, really? You know more than the doctor. Mm, remains to be seen. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, the question is, are you following his truth? And I, I think it would be fair to say on the tone of Scripture, to the best of your ability. Nobody knows every single thing in the Scripture. Nobody follows every single thing. That doesn't excuse us. But we don't want to paint the standard as somehow until you're 100% perfect, you're not a disciple. No, quite the opposite. As we walk, we grow more and more like him. And so Jesus said we need to make disciples by teaching. And the goal of this process is to observe, to keep, or to guard, or to obey. Teach them everything that I have said so that they might keep it, they might guard it, they might obey it. So what are those truths? What are a few of those truths that are critical to knowing if we are a follower of Christ? A few of the critical truths that he wants us to observe. Well, the, the first one is this, his identity as the God-man. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The name Jesus is the name most closely connected to his humanity. And of course, the name Son of God is connected to his deity. The scriptures were written, the apostle John said, so that you might understand that Jesus was fully man and fully divine, joined together in a way that we can't fully grasp, and so that when he died on the cross, he died sinlessly perfect, and he shed his blood for us. God, over or Christ, over and over, was talking to the people around him about who he was, and that they needed to believe that he was God and man together in one unique per person. One of the big mistakes people make with the, with the Gospels in the New Testament is looking at the miracles of Christ and coming away saying, God wants us to do the kinds of things Jesus did. When the reality is, Jesus did the things he did so people would understand who he was. He didn't do miracles to make people feel better. I understand that was a byproduct. It was also a foretaste of what's gonna be in heaven but he did miracles so people would come away going, my Lord and my God. 
and they would understand who he was. And very few of them did while he was here on earth, but that's why he did those miracles. His identity as the God-man, that is one of the things that Christ wants us to understand. Number two, he wants us to understand his critique of us as sinners. This is one of the hard things for us humans to to, uh, appreciate, to, to, to take in the fact that we are sinners. But I think a passage like this, this verse, of course, is real familiar to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And in that verse, we get a little clue that something is wrong and it's gonna result in us perishing, but we really don't have the full impact of, of our identity as sinners until a few verses later. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Okay, well, what do we need to be saved from? And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This is one of the hardest things for human beings to accept about Christ. You want to talk about him as a a good man, a prophet, a lot of those things. But when you start looking at his truth that we are sinners, that we are bound for hell... Uh, one of the people, uh, I think was it maybe it was, uh, I can't remember which one now, gave testimony to that when I was a young person. I came to understand I was going to go to a, a place of torment if I didn't get right with God. And, and that's an important understanding to have. Jesus said that mankind has a fundamental problem. We are sinners. And so people in our society respond to us by saying, who do you think you are condemning me? Last Sunday, I preached out of God's word on obeying the government as much as possible and only disobeying when the government directly contradicts scripture. And right away on Monday morning, several people sent me a link to this brouhaha that's going on in Texas that ultimately is being inspired because there are some people who do not want to accept God's definition of sin. When God says certain behavior choices in your life are sin, people say, who do you think you are? And they set out to stop that message. By the end of the week, things have changed but it's just a matter of time until things aren't changed and until we are the clear majority standing here saying, we're sinners, you're sinners. People don't like that message. If I come back to my original question, who do you think you are to judge me? The answer is, I don't think I'm anybody. And I don't judge any of you, but my judgment isn't the one that matters It is the judgment of God that matters, the Lord of the universe. And so you are a sinner until Christ removes your sin. And that's the good news, that Christ wants to remove your sin. And that's the third part of this message. What are the truths that Jesus requires his followers to believe? His claim to be the unique solution to our problem. There are a lot of religions in the world that will give you a solution, supposedly, to mankind's problems, but Jesus claims to be a unique solution. That solution is summed up in this verse. 
the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Isaiah 53 says that when Christ was on the cross, God took all of our sins and laid them on to Christ. And because he was the perfect son of God, he could take that. He could take that punishment of God, and he did. And the result is he has paid the, the ransom to the kidnapper of sin, if you will, and we can be freed from that sin. But the part that a lot of people don't like, the lordship part is this. I say to you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, that I am the Savior, that I am the Son of God. That's the part that people don't like. That's what makes the word Lord a four-letter word. Are you telling me that he says there's one way and only one way? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Uh, a, a man who was a Muslim and came to faith in Christ and became a teacher of Christianity said this, Christianity is unique among the world's religions because Jesus is unique. As the one and only Son of God who died for sin and rose from the dead in power and victory, no other belief system simultaneously presents God as both judge and advocate. In all, all other systems provide a path, a guide, or a journey. In Christianity, Jesus is the path. And so he says, you have to embrace my unique identity as the Savior. And number four, you've got to embrace, believe, receive the proof of my identity in the resurrection. The haters of Christ taunted him with an Old Testament proof of a prophet in this passage right here. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, and, and again, these were not sincere seekers, they were people who hated Christ. They said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. In the Old Testament time frame, God told his people, if a guy comes and says, I'm from God, here, and they said, you ask him what his proving miracle is. He would have a miracle from God if he had a message from God, and that miracle would come true, that prediction would come true, and that's how you would know his, his prediction was from God. So they said, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now he said that because everything they needed to know about him was written in the Old Testament. I just quoted from Isaiah 53. It was right there. He will die for your sins. God talked all about it in the Old Testament. It was all there. And so Jesus said, you don't need a sign. You're, you're sinfully seeking one so you can disprove me. But he said, I will give a sign. No sign will be given except here's the one sign I will give you, the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. Jesus said, here's the sign, here's the proof, here's how I am going to prove to you that I was who I said I was. Now here's what happened after the resurrection, after came out, Jesus came out of the tomb. Now while the disciples were going away from the tomb, behold, some of the guard came into the city. The Roman guards had been posted at the tomb to make sure there wasn't a fraud committed. 
the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came by night and stole him away while he, we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. You see, if you lost a prisoner when you were a Roman guard, then you lost your life. And so they, they, they're going completely against the norm here. So they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews till this day. Gospel of Matthew would have been written 30 or 40 years later after the events that happened. To me, the real proof of the resurrection, though, comes in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the, the apostle Peter was preaching a sermon in Jerusalem. And here's what he said. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or proved, demonstrated by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, why is this passage such a great proof of the resurrection? If you read the Gospels carefully, you will see statements like this. Jesus went into town and healed all their diseases. In other words, he would come into a place like Ferndale, and the next day, everybody who came to him was healed. What kind of a witness does that create? And think about some of the special miracles of healing that we read about. You know, the one where, where the fellow was lame, and, and Jesus made him walk, but the leaders didn't like it because it was done on the Sabbath day, and they had this big brouhaha, and, and here's this fellow who said, I don't know anything about this guy, but I know, he was blind, excuse me. I used to be blind, and now I can see. This guy was rock solid in his understanding of Christ. Now that happened in Jerusalem, and this sermon is being preached in Jerusalem, what are the odds that guy was hanging around somewhere? And when they said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus, a man attested to you by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs. There's a guy in the crowd going, yeah, you tell him. I used to be blind. And everybody's going around and going, what in the world is wrong with you? Shut up. But you know what the really big deal is here? When he gets down and says, God raised him up, do you know that anywhere in the old city of Jerusalem is within walking distance of two places? The place where Christ was crucified and the place where he was buried. And any of those guys in that crowd could have said, you're a liar, Peter! Right over there is his tomb and the stone is still there. Let's go open it up and see if he's in there. And Peter would, if Jesus was still there, Peter would have been shamed. Peter would have been stoned. Instead, Peter stands up and just breathes God's fire of the word. And 3,000 people said, you're right. We got it wrong. He is the Lord. 
The real proof of the resurrection is is here, and it's in all of these people who came to real faith in Christ. And so our Savior gave a proof of his identity, and he also gave us one more truth we have to grasp, and that is his requirement. Faith evidenced by obedience. Faith evidenced by obedience. After eight days, this is... uh, eight days after Christ's resurrection. His disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, remember Thomas was the guy who said, i got to see the proof. i got to put my hands on the man and know that this is real. And so Jesus looked right at Thomas. He said, Thomas, reach your finger here. And look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus gave a promise that applies to us. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. The God-man who was crucified, buried, and risen from the dead says you must believe. And he says if that faith is genuine, you will observe or do what he has commanded. The first, the first of which is baptism. A willingness to be baptized is the first significant evidence of real faith in Christ as Savior. We don't press people to get baptized in a hurry because we want people to understand what they have believed and what they are doing in baptism. I could go either way on this. I could, you know, there are churches who have the water in the baptistry. And if a person were to come forward and say, I want to believe in Christ, they'd say, okay, let's go right into the baptistry, let's hear your testimony, and let's baptize you. I think probably some people would say, well, not today. And that would be good. But that means they understand that they're, they haven't fully come under the lordship of Christ, they haven't fully come to believe in him. And yet it would be good to help them understand right where they're at. We try to teach people and help them understand. But here's what you need to understand. While we're patient, while God is patient, until you're willing to give that testimony of your salvation, your discipleship is in question. It's in question, it should be in question to you. Now, lordship of, the lordship of Christ goes way on beyond the baptism into all kinds of things in our life. But make no mistake, Jesus is the master. He is the Lord. And he says he has the right to command. And we need to say yes if we would be his followers. When I was, uh, when I was in my senior year of Bible college, I was in a class with about a dozen guys who were all preparing for the ministry. 
and every, either on a Monday or Tuesday, whatever it was the first day of the week, we all had an assignment due. Just a little assignment, kind of a thought assignment so that, that would lead us on into other things during the week. And I remember one week, we came in, we're all there, and the teacher was a, a great man that we all loved and was a great teacher. And he said, let's have your homework right at the beginning of class. And one or two guys out of 12 handed him a paper. And he says, in a way that only he could say, what are you guys going to do when you get in the ministry and Sunday morning comes? Are you going to say, you know, I didn't have time to get my homework done. I didn't have time to prepare to preach. And I thought, oh, man, take that dagger out. I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to think I could do whatever I wanted with my homework. And he should be pleased with it. It's a hard word. This is a hard word. The word Lord is a hard word. I get that. I understand that. You know, Jesus spoke some hard words while he was here on earth. And after he spoke one teaching, many of his disciples, when they heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And from that time on, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the 12, who we now call the apostles, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This word that I've given you today is a, is a hard word. I understand that. But I give it in the same spirit that this guy gives the word. If you don't know who he is, that means you're really godly people because you don't watch much TV. <laughs> and he, he don't look like a guy many of you would want to have on our pl pl platform until now that you know him and you'd love to have him here, and I would too. I watched a little video of him preaching. And he stood up and basically said, I'm going to say some things that you might not want to hear, but I want you to know something. I love you. And that's why I'm going to say it. Jesus loved us. That's why he said, you must be born again. The word Lord, the word master, is a hard word, especially for our American society. I get that. It's a hard word for me sometimes. But it's a good word because he has the words of eternal life. Heavenly Father, bring those words of eternal life home to us today. I thank you for these five young people who heard your word of eternal life and who wrestled with that word and who came through understanding and believing and resting in that word. May that be true always of their lives. From this day forward, may they not go back. May they not go to the left or to the right, but may they walk with you. And now, Father, we pray for the rest of us. May we accept the Lord, either in salvation or on that daily basis as a Christian. May we receive the Lord. May we count him our master. May we do it with joy because he has the words of eternal life. I pray in his name, amen.